Hello, and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we dive deep into Albo's most inhuman work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to talk about Execution 13.5. So last chapter, Blake was doing some uh, chat messages with the junior council. And uh, (laughs) this chapter starts with Blake just kind of sitting at the computer, watching uh, the chat messages go past and thinking about what he's just done. Yeah, and I, I like I think this feels like a bit of an artifact of of last chapter's premise. Like last chapter was almost closer to an interlude than a regular chapter in yeah. a way. Uh it, it, I guess since we were out of Blake's head for the whole chapter, there's sort of this need to open this chapter with him recapping it so that we understand what he was thinking as he did it. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um yeah, and it makes sense. I mean it was it was a chapter where we kind of knew Blake's motivations, but it's still good to get a picture of um how he viewed the the discussion that just went down with uh, with seemingly breaking through to the junior council, right? I mean, yeah. Blake Blake uh has changed himself to appear offline and watches as the Thorburns <laughs> are still active in the chat and don't just get immediately kicked out. So that feels to me confirmation that he's broken through to them, right? Confirmation to us as the audience, but also like confirmation to Blake that he's kind of justified a bit in his actions, which is kind of the f- the theme of uh, at least the first half of this chapter, if not the entire chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the line that really stood out to me with his sort of ruminating on all this is uh, his 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 idea that you know this might work because Thorburns as a group are great at manipulating systems. Uh, but not him. He's just a normal Joe. Uh, yeah. He doesn't get. He only gets half those Thorburn powers. And it's like, I, does he not remember Toronto? I mean, I feel like I've said that exact phrase a number of times now. Uh, but it's like, it, he manipulated the shit out of Toronto. He, he brought the whole system crashing down. Um, it, you know, we talk about how practitioners resemble what they practice. Yeah. Hey, he feels like a bit of a demon in the way he just sort of came into Toronto, completely dismantled the power structures, and fucked right off. Yeah. Um, I mean, he didn't leave <laughs> by choice, but... You know. Yeah. I, I I actually kind of now want to even more heavy-handedly, I think, compare him with the Scourge that we meet later in this chapter, who is, you know, the best example of a Scourge we've seen so far, and see whether uh, Blake feels like he fits in with the Scourge's whole deal. Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot to talk about there, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll get to that soon. First, um, Blake basically is asking Joyce and uh, Lola and Gail eventually as well uh, for more information on the list of seven names that he's collected. And she basically dishes the dirt on uh, these seven where she can. And man, it's uh, rough. Yeah, let's let's get into this because S- fuck. <laughs> yeah, um, so... Blake was right, I guess, is the theme. (laughs) (laughs) Practitioners are monsters, especially the Duchamp husbands, and he should just kill them all. Um, Because they're, they're, like, this is fucked up. Uh, I would say I'm I'm somebody who doesn't really advocate for uh, capital punishment, and at least two of these seven names are bad enough that I'm... Kind of on Team Blake here, right? <laughs> it it makes you feel less bad about that as an option than uh, you'd like to feel, is is how I would phrase it. Yeah. Um, um, I'm uncomfortable with how on board I am with just offing these arseholes. Um, and even if I, you aren't willing to go that far, it's pretty damning uh, for the Duchamps. Like, it's oh, pretty yeah. hard to not just hate the Duchamps, and Sandra, who is a relatively <laughs> likable character, but really doesn't come out of this conversation looking very clean. Um, I think my the one that is the most reprehensible to me is the guy who basically um, turns somebody into a slave, uh, turns his, sorry, turns his wife into a slave um, with sexual abuse connotations as well, I think. Um, and it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that <laughs> the the way uh the way Joyce deals with it is basically saying, yeah, look, we don't like to talk about that one that much, which is insane. It's an insane what thing a, to say. It, it's not even that because that you're right. That would be a ten out of ten bad statement. 
Yeah. What she says is that's not the kind of story we share, especially to someone who's currently engaged or about to be engaged. Yeah. Which takes it to a 12 out of 10 bad statement because, like, holy shit, do you not hear yourself? Yeah, I mean, what she's saying is, yeah, that's a fucked up story, but we don't tell it to the people that Could be we're next. trying to indoctrinate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, there's, it doesn't, it, there's no good, <laughs> yeah, like, it's so fucked up. And she, she clearly, and the Duchamp family clearly know how fucked up it is. Yeah, I think that hesitation to even find the words of how much you hate this just kind of sums up this whole first half of the chapter, where it's just like, she's saying more and more, uh, oh, there's a bit where she's like, you know, oh, this only happens once or twice a generation, so that's oh far too many times per generation, that is that is very avoidable, Yeah. Um, stop picking such shitheads, and I mean, like, the, the premise of the Duchamp family has always been pretty icky, um, like... I don't think any of us sort of looked at it in, in the first few arcs and were like, oh, that seems nice. Um, like, it was always pretty gross, but it's just, there's a whole new level of awful to it that, that we've really been confronted with this chapter. Yeah. I, I mean, there are cultures in the world that still do regularly practice arranged marriages, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Indian cultures, I was just at a Jewish wedding that was a their version of an arranged marriage, which is, you know, you you meet them and you, you go on a few dates and then you get married, right? Um, yeah, but you just sort of like set up by your parents. Yes, kind exactly. Of, like, yeah. uh, maybe arranged marriage isn't the right word. Maybe more a kind of set up by your parents or by a family member. And so there's a, this, I don't, this practice is like fine. It's a way to meet people theoretically, right? But It the, can work. Yeah. And so I kind of, I think tricked myself into um not seeing how terrible it is for the Duchamps and this chapter really just takes the <laughs> takes that curtain and, and rips it wide open um it's horrifying yeah, I mean there was always a sort of sense there was always a sort of sense that they were you know just because of the way they're always so kind of prettied up there was always this underlying sense of like them kind of being like inherently objectified or, or you know treated as product not yeah. people yeah uh and that was always like a little bit gross but now we kind of see the sacrifices that come with that and i think this is so perfect for like you know like sandra is this person who is like a, a microcosm of this because she seems really nice and like every time she's in a chapter i kind of get on her side again because she's she seems very fair or whatever but you sort of you, when you zoom out from things Sandra is saying, they start to, like, become a bit more reprehensible. Yeah. And, um, like, we're seeing, like, the opposite with the whole family structure is, you know, it's just at the surface level glance, it's just kind of like, oh, that's that's a bit not cool, but, you know, presumably they're getting nice, powerful husbands or whatever, so you can mm. and it's like, no, they're all just terrible, or not all of them. And to be fair, we're talking about the, the worst of the worst here, and there's too many of them, but this may not be representative of the whole pack, but it's still, it's far too many for this to be in any way okay. Like, you're just like, fucking hell, guys, what are you doing? Yeah, and I also, I don't know if this was intentional on Wildbo's part or not, but the way we were introduced to this concept was through Sandra, and that was, A, described as being one of the worst-case scenarios, and B, the best-case scenario that we've seen so far. So <laughs> I think it's easy, like, whether Wabo was trying to trick us into being okay with it or not, I think it's easy to be like, um, yeah, look, it's probably bad, but it's worked out and it seems fine. Uh, and uh, no, yeah. that's, uh, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like, I think I think we all tricked ourselves, or, or at least, you know, I, I sort of tricked myself as I was walking through this to thinking, oh, it's a bit gross, but it's not that bad. Yeah. And I was like, no, actually, it, it really can be. Yeah, and uh, that's obviously the same mindset that uh, some of the younger Duchamps, like Lola, have had as well, right? They've seen Sandra and Jeremy, and it's been like, yeah, it didn't work out. Uh, it was kind of okay. They were in love for a bit, but it didn't work out, and they got divorced, and Sandra seems fine. And it's like, okay, cool. That I'm happy to condone myself or my younger sister to this life, right? Um, uh, but now Lola is seeing the truth, uh, looking behind the curtain, and um, she is not happy. <laughs> she she is uh, definitely getting more and more on side with Blake throughout <laughs> the first half of this chapter, which is good. Yeah, well, I think she's, yeah, it, as you said, she's getting a peek behind the curtain. She's seeing that it it's worse than she feared. Like, you know, they knew they were going to get saddled with someone they may not necessarily like that much. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, they didn't realize that there were possibilities that they would get, like, tortured and um all just the the list of shit that they go through in this section of the chapter yeah. um i mean this this feels like the 
the best thing that's happened to Blake so far. He talks about how great it was that he got the Thorburns talking to the the younger practitioners to sort of get a to get a bit of a you know foot in the door. I this is just Joyce mm. slamming the door wide open for for Lola to stroll through for him, basically. I mean, yeah, uh, but what can Joyce do apart from tell the truth, right? Like it's a it's a mm. it's an opening of her own making. Yeah, well, I mean, she had a sword to the throat at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I love this because you know we've been seeing the young Duchamps in particular, um, but this sort of applies to the Bahames. There was you know this sense, and we really felt it through Penny. This idea of like they were struggling to let go of this inherent like privileged position they had as the practitioners. Like they wanted to stop the fighting and get rid of the violence, but they were still trying to keep themselves on top. And you can kind of see like Lola is realizing in this chapter that like they're not. They're not as on top and in control and, and everything's fine as maybe they expected being yeah. members of this family. Yeah, I, I kind of like the theme of, um, well, should we be on top? That feels like it's starting to run through uh, the Duchamp's minds and, and everybody's mind, I think, um, as it continues. Yeah. Um, I, I quickly want to talk about, we, we already, we're going to talk about Crooked Hat where we meet him later. Yeah. Um, the, the Abyss um, Scourge. Yep. Uh, but I want to talk about this concept of his domain here, just because it's brought up. Um, I, I mean, because he has, like, his domain is partially in the abyss, which is just, like, fascinating. Um, like, obviously, we've got a main character who's dealing with this concept of finding his place in this world while he's still tied to the abyss. And now we've literally just met a guy who has, like, dipped his toes in the abyss metaphorically, and, and he's <laughs> trying to... I think the term they use is like he's trying to manipulate it to his own ends. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, I was just thinking like you know obviously we've got, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that I guess but you know the abyss is obviously underpinning all of reality and trying to affect change and you're like God if you could just get it to try and affect better change, um, like what we got to I was like what we got to do is get Pose and get him near Blake he can reverse that connection where Blake's being influenced by the abyss Blake will influence the abyss. And uh, the world is saved. You're welcome, Pactverse. <laughs> so you think the abyss should be like a tool to be used for change? Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of seems like what they're hinting at Crooked Heart was maybe aiming to do. Yeah. I don't think he was necessarily trying to change the type of change it does. He was just trying to get it pointed in the direction he wanted. Yeah. Um. But I mean, yeah, like I think, you know, the, the abyss could be standing here as this tool. Like, I, and I, I think that's just an idea that we might explore because, you know, obviously Blake is inherently tied to the abyss and we're hearing more and more about it. We're seeing practitioners who specialize in it now. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like we're going to do something with it. Uh, just this idea of a domain in there as well is so fascinating. I remember the witch lady in Arc 9 talked a bunch about domains. Um, mm. I think she thought that the abyss was originally a domain mm. and it fell and it like sort of took on a life of its own. So um, I don't know if Blake can still get domains, but he should do that too. Yeah, cool. Um We'll see, I guess. Uh, yeah, it'd be funny to see Blake get a domain in the abyss. I mean, I don't know if he'd go <laughs> for it, but who knows what it could do? It could do anything. He could get if if he got that deal where it was half in the abyss or whatever, and it just acts as like a funnel that's feeding the abyss. Maybe the abyss will lax off on him uh, in the rest of his duties. Probably not, though. It doesn't seem like a cool dude. The abyss. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like the abyss to just chillax for a bit, huh? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I also want to touch on uh the concept of the benevolent, uh this practitioner yeah. who is it basically just has good karma. Um I absolutely love this because <laughs> it's obviously set up to be like this is the anti-Blake, right? This is somebody whose karma is so good that that's their whole thing. And Blake as someone who feels like he has been subject to so much bad karma. It's just like, well, if my life is like this because of bad karma, I don't even want to touch someone who has good karma and just writes it off immediately. It's a great setup. Uh, I mean, yeah, for me, that reeks of karma. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I read this because so, he goes, I mean, we basically cut immediately from Blake being like, this guy's everything I hate about the world right now. And because like this guy, like this, this really proves to you how fucked up karma is. He's tricking women into marrying him. Um, like he's, he's treating them like shit. Apparently that's not bad karma, um, because he's still got really good karma. He makes his practice out of getting good karma. So he's clearly just like a piece of shit that is being rewarded by the universe in its definition of being a good person, which is like fucked up. And Blake is like, this is everything that I hate. I got to take this guy down. 
but that does seem like a risk, so I'm just going to cross him off my list. And it's yeah. like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> this, this just he goes so quickly from this guy's the worst to, hmm, I just don't think I should attack him. That I was just like, oh fuck, there's his good karma, yeah, right there. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's and it's the only person that Blake crosses off of his list. It's mm-hmm, just kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, let's not worry about it. And which is, yeah, it's so <laughs> obviously his good karma protecting him from Blake. Um. Yeah, it's 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 just hilarious. And I mean, uh, on the other side, wait, wait, something that we're probably not going to talk about as much as we could in in this episode is uh, all these little great tidbits of like practices we're learning about. Like the idea of someone whose practice is basically just to earn good karma and cash in on it is kind of fascinating because we know that karma doesn't work when you're like looking for it. Like you know, if you try to flip a coin and think. Oh, karma means it'll do this. It, it it won't. Like the universe likes to work without you realizing. So it'd be really yeah. hard to be someone whose role is built around manipulating that because you'd basically be having to try and play blind. Yeah, is is my understanding of it. Like he he'd have to be not thinking about it to, for it to work, um, which is just fascinating. Yeah, I remember I, it was really early on. I don't know exactly when, but there was just a discussion about really good karma being as dangerous as really bad karma because you become mm-hmm. dependent on it, I think was the was the 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 thought there. Um I think it was Miss Lewis who was telling us about it. And yes. I think what she said was as well that there's a lot of opportunistic others who will come and try to take it from you. Um mm. so that that was the other risk is basically you make yourself a bit of a target. And so obviously like I think it's something you would have to balance really well. And it's kind of fascinating that there's someone out there who can who can do that. Like, I, like, you know, I think that'd be a really interesting um, story in and of itself, basically. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll get to see, uh, we'll get to see the benevolent at some point in this story. We'll see. Um, I don't know. I think his good karma is going to keep him far away from Blake. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that uh, the best thing his karma has done for him is keep him out of this story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so Blake has got the download on uh, all the potential kills and he heads to where the Duchamps are all fighting to um, basically observe the battlefield and try and pick who a good first target for him to murder would be. I wonder how Molly's doing. That's something that nobody thinks about in this chapter. Mm. Um, she doesn't seem to be on the battlefield, but hopefully she's glad that Blake fucking finally showed up. Yeah. Um, I mean, Molly's influence on the battlefield is all these others attacking the Duchamps. So I, I, I kind of wonder how... Um, like present she is in this battle or whether she's just kind of done some stuff and she's fucking off to to worry about other things or spy on blake or whatever it is yeah exactly it's hard to know how much is she's just lit the fuse or how much she's still sort of stoking the fire Mm. um i mean blake i I feel like if she was still there and still emanating her presence blake would have commented on it but um, yeah you can't be sure with him yeah um again we haven't got a uh uh, note of the bell recently so that's another thing to watch yeah. out for um so one thing that this made me think was like this is when we really see the duchamps at power and they are powerful mm. like clearly the the sheer amount of practitioner power that they have here is so strong and it kind of makes me worry about how the heck Johannes is as strong as he is because he's you know one dude with a bunch of others at his disposal and he's able to rival the sheer like force that the Duchamps seem to be like this is an army of strong practitioners and Johannes is able to like be a strong contender against them I'm kind of terrified how little of Johannes's actual power we have seen yeah, I mean, because him, him and Sandra have been the front runners for the wardship, and obviously the Duchamp's whole thing is just their sheer number and variety of practitioners. So what this sort of tells us is Johannes must have the equivalent of others, and, and you know we know he has a bunch, but this really gives you a sort of idea of the magnitude of the shit he must be able to bring to the table. Um, just yeah, I don't know, and I feel like he's still got his secret weapon of his pipes up his sleeve. Um, that you know we've been talking about for arcs and arcs now mm. uh, yeah i don't know and I presumably feel like, uh, hundreds of mouse children I mean, yeah yeah well i mean i don't think those two things are distinct um <laughs> i i think i mean you know obviously blake weakening the duchamps that feels like it's going to be the the trigger for johannes to to make his move right like 
I mean, yeah, I guess. Um, or the Behames plus Thorburn alliance. <laughs> oh yeah, that old thing. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess we'll see. Um, I mean, we've still got to make it that far. He's it like does a number on them uh, in this chapter, but uh, you know, the Duchamps are still going strong, and the final boss of uh, Jeremy and Sandra won't fall that easy. I don't think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Blake is uh, surveying the battlefield and eventually decides that the Scourge, the man in the crooked hat, is uh, a good first target. Um, somebody that's the right balance of still connected to the family, but um, exposed enough that he can kill him and, and will be uh, a good opportunity to kill him first before the, the Duchamps start getting wise to what's going on. But Blake, I was just saying how cool it would be to get all the information about this guy. Like, he seems so thematically relevant to you. Why are you killing him first? <laughs> yeah, torture some information out of him at least, Blake. Gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, and so Blake basically, uh, true to his character, decides to make an opportunity here. He doesn't just rush in suicidal. He, I mean, not makes a plan, but at least waits for a plan to present itself, which I feel like is a step up. Um. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. It doesn't quite work out, but... Yeah. <laughs> it goes all right. Um, so one thing I want to call out about this Scourge, which I really liked, is when Blake's looking at him, he points out that he's wearing a lot of mismatched clothing. Uh, basically, well, let me read it out. He says, The items didn't match, not quite, despite his generally neutral colour scheme. The various articles of clothing had been collected. Trophies. I, I love this. I mean, like... It's cool. These Duchamp husband practitioners are obviously pure evil, but you mentioned this before. I just love all these different practitioners and how varied their practices are and how quickly they die before we get to find out how cool they all are. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, you're right. It's just another sort of angle or, you know, this brief window into a whole other branch of the practice. And we're barely scratching the surface of it. Like he's clearly enchanting these items or something with, um, like I guess I don't know, boogeyman energy, presumably as an as an abyss studier. Yeah, or I I kind of even like I would say that this feels about eighty percent of an intentional comparison to Blake because Blake's whole thing is seems to have been collecting tools made from the you know the bodies of others that he's bound or defeated. It started out being the ones that he's bound with June and um, Leonard was his name, I think. Um, yeah. Well, now obviously he's covered in goblin gear. Yes. Now it's the hyena and those other goblins that he defeated uh, last chap two chapters ago. Um, yeah. I kind of see uh, the Scourge, the Crooked Hat Man, as being the extension of what Blake would have become if he continued down that path. Not necessarily in personality, but in kind of appearance and style. No, I mean, I, 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 like as I sort of touched on, when we were talking about his like domain in in the abyss thing, and how how I think that mirrors Blake's situation with with this. Like, there's so much, there's so many lines to draw between these two, and you're absolutely absolutely right. Blake has just drawn another one by pointing out, oh, he's covered in trophies. I said while holding the hyena and this chain and, like, <laughs> and this whatever goblin the fuck cleaver. else he's still yeah. got on him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but uh, it's just this whole idea. Like we haven't heard too much in this story. I think there was like a pages interlude that went into like people who bind spirits and stuff into objects to enhance them. Yeah. Um, and it feels like this must, I guess, be the abyss version of that. It's really cool, and we barely touch on it. Uh, and I, I mean, it just makes the world feel so rich. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. Um, I wish we got to see more of this scourge. Uh. We'll see, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm also, I was hoping that, well, we'll get to this in a second. Um, so basically, Blake makes this opportunity when this uh, big, tall guy other uh, basically runs past. And Blake's like, ooh, let me latch onto you. You can be my distraction. So I didn't, I didn't get this bit. Like, you know, I've read it a couple of times now. And I still, I still don't understand what the gold pointy thing that happened was. Mm. At first I thought it was a connection or something being established, but I thought Blake didn't have the sight anymore. So I, I don't know, because someone clearly sort of sends this thing at them briefly mm. or, or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I don't quite understand what happened here. If anyone knows, let, let me know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, it seems like it's just some kind of like 
defensive wall or something that gets put up by one of these Duchamp women and Blake just kind of jumps over it and then it seems to go down for some reason. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Or was this thing just running at the Duchamps sort of by coincidence? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. If anybody understood this bit, let, let me know because I'm I, I just something's not clicking for me and I don't I don't know what what bit I've missed. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> uh, maybe it's it could be uh, like a Duchamp baiting this other into not attacking Blake but attacking them, like getting close, getting reckless, and making a mistake. Um, because it does seem to have some kind of like rage induced features, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, um, so <laughs> again, Blake is, tries to be friendly to this other, uh, as he always does now that he's another, he seems to see more allegiance in others than in humans and, um, <laughs> tries to get him on side. The other, uh, seems to be too out of its own mind to, to, uh, listen to reason, but it definitely just kind of chases Blake down and that, that kind of works as its own distraction. Yeah, it does sort of feel like, I, I keep walking away with the impression that he gives others a bit he's a bit more forgiving of others than he is of bad people like I don't know there's I, I don't know how fair that is but there is a sense of like he gives people a quick chance and if they don't do well that he, he offs them whereas with others it's sort of like oh that's just this other's too dumb you know so I'll let him keep doing his thing and just use him yeah um, Whereas he, he doesn't trust humans this, to the same level or something, yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe others are just a bit more predictable uh, if they're just sort of straight up bad. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he feels like they're more reliable to just be tools, whereas a practitioner can double-cross you, another. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. at least some of the less uh, intelligent ones, less sentient ones, kind of won't. Who knows what's in Blake's head, though, at any point, to be honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, maybe if it was, like, a djinn or something, he'd be treating it a bit more like a practitioner. Yeah, yeah, or, like, a corviday that seems to be basically just a strong yeah. enchantress. Um, <laughs> Where is that guy? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, who knows? Uh, so, Blake, yeah, Blake uses this tall guy as, an, as a distraction. Basically, as far as I can tell, he seems to be... Uh, he basically pretends he's being chased by this other or kind of running in to assault the Duchamps mindlessly. Duchamp, sorry, mindlessly. Um, and as he's closer, he just kind of jumps and uh, <laughs> jumps in a way that they hopefully wouldn't expect, lands right next to them, um, and is kind of quickly surrounded. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't go very well. I like the bit where as he's charging them, there's a Duchamp woman who tries to kind of redirect him onto the Valkala, who's another shitheel of a human being that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. Um, and Blake, Blake just kind of manages to ignore the effect by saying, yeah, yeah I'm going to kill him too. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, he's got to wait his turn. It's it's really interesting. I don't know how much of this to chalked up to like, wait, did the enchantment not work because that guy was already on Blake's hit list and like, you know, this was the Duchamp's woman attempt to like lead him into a trap, but Blake just sort of looked over there and he's like, yeah, getting there, like, and there was no, the connection was harder to disrupt because it was already more solid. Yeah, it, interest. I don't know, I kind of think maybe if Blake was a bit more mindless, like this tall other is, then it would have worked on him, but he's, he kind of was able to think his way through it a bit. Like, he kind of knew he was being redirected, and in fact, he uses that information later to suss out a trap. Um, so yeah. it really doesn't work out for, for this Duchamp trying to redirect him. Yeah, that's fair. Um... And so, yeah, Blake basically jumps into a pile of Duchamps, and uh, I don't know why this didn't occur to me before, but this is a, a bad plan. Um, <laughs> he He's basically just jumping into a bunch of practitioners, at least one of which is explicitly trained to deal with him, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's another, it feels like another suicidal Blake plan, I think. <laughs> the best kind. Yeah. Um, no, I, kind. I agree. I mean, he, he did... He... He does just sort of once they've been spotted, he just charges right into the thick of it. It's uh it's brave. Yeah, brave I guess we'll call it. Um so yeah, Blake uh scraps with the scourge and slightly with some other Duchamps, but mainly with the Scourge. Um and this Scourge seems to almost have the Abyss reclaim Blake before Blake kinda just blusters his way through that and then ends up uh, <laughs> turning the tides. Yeah, so let's talk about this guy now that we because Blake sort of has a convo with him in this section. Um, and I want to talk about his worldview, uh, cause he sort of comes at Blake with this idea that the abyss and the real world aren't that different. Um, and Blake writes him off as this terrible cynic. Um, and, like you can, you can see sort of what he's saying. Um, like you can agree with Blake, this idea that this, he's this guy who 
sees the world as just kind of inherently miserable and is just trying to manipulate it to make it less miserable for him. And he's using another slightly more miserable place to do it. Um, kind of lines up with the Duchamps with their whole like just so type thinking. Yeah. Um, I guess. Uh, but I, I don't know. I guess you could view him as someone who thinks the abyss is more pure because there's less pretending. Mm. I don't know. Um, but you know, I, I guess to, wait, leaping off of my idea before about using the abyss as a good tool for change. Um, you know, there could be like a nugget of truth to this. Like Blake talks about how the real world's better because it has love and, and all that. But you know, we, we saw some people who were making do in the abyss. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, the witch and stuff. Like, I, I don't know. Um, like, I guess I, I feel like, I feel like maybe, maybe this guy isn't that wrong and they're, but they're both thinking about it the wrong way. They're mm. both attributing it all to the terrible things, whereas it's like maybe the abyss is just as fixable as the real world, basically. Um, and, yeah. you know, if we think of the abyss as this underlayer of reality, uh, then it might make sense that fixing the abyss could be the first step towards fixing reality, like as if the abyss sits below it and is feeding into it. Um, maybe maybe fixing the abyss is an important step in fixing the universe. Yeah, I, I feel like we've talked a fair amount about how the abyss seems to get a bad rap, right? Um, in, a, yeah. in a book filled with a lot of things that are actually a lot worse than they seem, the abyss is as bad as it seems, if not slightly better, <laughs> which I think <laughs> makes it come off quite well in this world. Yeah. I mean, what would like, be interesting is to see what the abyss looked like, like 2,000 years ago or something, when maybe the world was less toxic, I don't know, or maybe it was more and it was worse um yeah who knows i mean the other interesting idea i i had i don't know if we talked about this already but like i was thinking on the tenements versus the drains and so idea an idea i think we don't we haven't discussed is the idea that what if the abyss takes the shape of where somewhere is going like if jacob's bell is about to grow then the apartments represent you know this this potential growth that might be about to go under Mm. and um maybe you know i mean look Toronto is probably a bit of a shit show right now. Blake didn't leave it in a good state. There's uh, imps running around. Um, Pauz is there. Conquest is in a mirror. Um, it, it could very quickly be devolving into a shit show. And I just wonder if in the Pactverse it's going to devolve into the drains, basically. Um, like, just become a ruined city. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know if I buy idea. this idea. It's just a fun idea. Well, not fun, but, you know. <laughs> I, I kind of... I like it because it makes sense to me that the dominant kind of impression of where a place is going would permeate into the Abyss version of it. Like, I I think it works really well for Jacob's Bell because the idea of the tenements is such a great representation of, um, of, of, you know, capitalism in Jacob's Bell running wild, as it were, the power consolidating and getting stronger and stronger and more and more consolidated and that obviously kind of getting perverted because when less people have power, it seems to uh, not go so well. Um, and I love yeah. the tenements as a, as a representation of that. I don't think it works as well for Toronto, but maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Like I, yeah, I, I could see Toronto falling apart and starting to resemble the drains a bit because the drains felt a bit like a ruined um, city. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe, not, maybe not necessarily a ruined city, but just ruins. Yeah, um, definitely. More than the tenements, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess, I don't know, I, I, I'd have to, uh, maybe I should sit with this more, because obviously if we're going back to our sort of capitalist metaphor, uh, the abyss kind of represents, like, you know, ho- like extreme poverty and homelessness being sort of left behind by the system. Um, so, I don't know, I guess I'd, I'd want to try and work that in thematically. Mm. Maybe we'll see. Maybe the, maybe the story will beat me to it. I think it it definitely felt that way in the drains. I wonder how it feels that way in the tenements. Like... I'm thinking of the idea of a block of apartments representing um, representing the kind of, I guess, underclass, the socially, uh, the, the economic minority, maybe. Um, and it, it kind of makes me think about about Johannes's domain. Johannes's domain feels like it's a chunk of town that on the surface seems like it's doing well, but has this feeling of being the being the like squashed underfoot class. So maybe the the tenements plays into mm. that somehow. I'm not sure. I'm kind of there's a few ideas floating around in my head, and I'm trying to see how they all come together, but I'm not quite sure how. Yeah, we'll have to make this next week's discussion question so everyone can answer it for us. What Assuming is the not abyss? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I mean, it'd be interesting to see, like, you know, what the abyss under Johannes's domain looks like. Mm. Like, whether his domain being so large and, and being so iconic, what effect that might have on the abyss that maps underneath it. Yeah. I mean, I guess we will um, maybe see. It'd be a great way to sneak in. Um, probably <laughs> not, actually. Uh, that might not work against um, Faisal, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's true. Faisal probably knows enough to, to well, catch he'd, that he'd pick it. He'd pick it the second like a door opens, presumably. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's get back to the chapter. <laughs> yeah, so Blake basically defeats this scourge by uh, kind of blustering his way through the fight, right? And I, I love this because it's another example of the exact same thing that happened when Blake was fighting the Bahames back in Toronto, led specifically when he figured out the fact that perception was key to the Bahames' tricks, right? And that feels like he hmm. an escalation of what happens here, where Blake is able to kind of think his way through this this power. Um, and he does the same thing when he's charging at the Duchamps, right? He thinks, okay, well, what's the opposite of a Duchamp? Be blunt, right? Um, yeah. Time and time again, Blake is able to use his bluntness and his, uh, I guess, reckless self-endangerment in his favor. And I, I absolutely love that it seems to be a recurring beat that if Blake just kind of believes that his suicidal plans will work, they seem to have a much higher chance of doing so. Yeah, I mean, it's been a shtick, right, since we started using Glamour in, like, Arc 3. Um, I, I, yeah, the performative aspect of, of the world of Pact, like, how it makes sense that you've got the spirits kind of judging everything, and if you act real cool, then they'll reward you for it, is just one of the best bits. Actually, I don't know if I stand by that, because there's so many good bits, but it's one of the very good bits. Yeah. Um, no, I love it. Yeah. And it seems like everything about Blake uh, has been built you know, by Granny Rose, I guess, or by Wabo, um, to to support his his blakeness, right? The fact yeah. that he had glamour in the early arcs, the fact that he has Evan to kind of help him escape when things go wrong, the fact that his bluntness is such a powerful tool against, like, two of the major antagonists he's faced, the Bahames and the Duchamps, like, it just seems to have very uh, naturally flowed so that Blake's strategies always seem to work out. And I absolutely love how how clever it is that all of that comes together so neatly in Pact, almost without you even realizing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so eventually Blake uh, scares the Scourge or, like, startles him. He kind of s- backs off to, to get space to deal with Blake. And, uh, whoops, he's now within range of the tall guy, which is the, what that other's name is, I guess. Um, and the tall guy crushes his head and, sadly, his hat. Squish. <laughs> Yeah, so RIP my hopes of learning more about this guy and his uh, his plans. And Yeah, you kind of wanted Blake uh, to become or, his apprentice, huh? Yeah, yeah. This guy, just capture Blake, do like a villain monologue. Blake escapes, thanks to Evan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get tons of juicy lore. It's a win-win. <laughs> and it did seem like he was about to get into that, right? Um, yeah, a little bit. Maybe he's given Blake enough uh, nuggets of info that he'll be able to chase it down himself. We'll see. Well, wasn't um, enough for me. I'm really sad this guy's hat got squished as well so that Blake couldn't take it as a trophy because I I would love to see what this abyss uh, hat that seems to kind of blur the barriers between the real world and the abyss uh, would do for Blake. I think it would be awesome. Oh, being able to dip in and out of the abyss without losing a giant desk every time sounds like a, a huge yeah. benefit. Yeah, right now Blake has to carry around a huge writing desk with him wherever he goes and that's just impractical. Um, I also like Blake pulls out this strategy again where he says to his face to the Scourge's face do you know why your family asked me to kill you I asked because they did and of course that's the perfect thing to say because no one wouldn't be thrown off of their game by that like it's such Mm. a great line to just completely throw you off your game and it works and it gets this guy killed um, and it's very satisfying um, yeah, I mean, and he does it again a bit later. Like, uh, I love the way he's basically laying out this bait for everyone being like, you know, uh, like when he kills the Valkyrie, he's like, this is for the, the Duchamp daughters you killed or something. And he kind of just says it loud enough so everyone can hear. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great. I mean, it is, this is, it's great practitioner speak where he's sort of like, you know, just, he, he's created a situation where he, he can legitimately walk around and say the Duchamp sent me here. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I love it. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously good for throwing off he, the opponent that he's about to kill, but also starting this Duchamp civil war where the Duchamps obviously who hear that, who are within yeah. shot yeah. are like, uh, what <laughs> is this guy? One of ours. Mm. It's awesome. Um, yeah. 
Um, but of course, this is Blake. He's not just satisfied with one murder, so he decides to get a twofer and quickly uh, kill the Valkala while he's here. Gives him the old hyena to the spine after a brief scuffle. Yeah, uh, it's a great little action sequence. Yeah. Um, so much to talk about here, but it's just really cool. Blake just takes some bullets, um, like Imhotep and the mummy. It's really, it's really sick. Yep. A, uh, a reference really that feel... everyone will appreciate, I think. <laughs> uh, go watch the mummy, everyone. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, no, you're really feeling those like monster movie vibes from Blake. This, this chapter. Oh or yeah. The second half of this chapter. Yeah. And again, like obviously this guy is fucking horrible. Um, but again, just like there's so much juicy. Juicy world building to this character that I'm sad we'll never get to see, but also happy that this character <laughs> will never be seen again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's rare that I detest a character so much in one chapter from them being introduced, and then I get a satisfying death of them at the end. It's nice. And it happens <laughs> twice this chapter. It's awesome. Um, yeah, but that's sort of pretty much the end of the chapter. Um, and then this is interesting bit. Blake sort of leaves, and he starts to maybe regret some of his murdering mm. um this chapter like you know we, we just talked about how kind of on board we were for it uh but he killed this valkala guy and the thing is the valkala guy didn't actually do the terrible things he's just profiting well, from i mean him. yeah no let's be honest he he would do them he seemed like the the vibe he gives off is he seems like he is a shitheel and they were right yes um uh, blake kind of addresses this by saying hey you know how these things were made right and the guy's like yeah and then Blake's like, all right, well, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but there is this sort of sense, like, he does have that thought of, I've punished someone for the sins of their father, which is uh, really his big no-no because of, like, all the bad karma he inherited. I think that's his least favorite part of karma is this idea of the inheritance. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just interesting that he's starting to have this doubt here because it's like, what makes this guy that he just killed different from a, a young Bahame or Duchamp that's yeah. perpetuating their cycle? Like, uh... I wonder where his thought process might be going with this. Yeah, I mean, I, it kind of feels like the cutoff for Blake is you're older, you should know better, right? Like, if you're older than 18 or 21 or whatever arbitrary cutoff Blake has in his head, you are more, <laughs> you are fully accountable for your actions. And if you play into a system after a certain age or after a certain amount of time, I'm sorry, but you've played into it for too long and you're accountable. Which isn't the worst yeah. opinion, honestly. No, no, sure, but um, I, I don't know. I thought I got the impression this guy was kind of old too. I don't know. It's just it's an interesting doubt for him to have because it seems like a. I mean, I guess whatever it takes him to to sort of start to question like his murder sprees. Yeah, um, to be but honest, it's an interesting point to get hung up on. It 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 seems a little out of character for him. Like he he has not doubted himself about worse shit than this. <laughs> so yeah, why, yeah. Why is this the thing that he doubts himself about? I guess it's hopefully to be taken as a beat of him being more self-aware and being more of his human self which is good obviously um i don't know you're right that it's it's an interesting quibble for him to have yeah yeah i guess we'll see where it might go uh next next chapter yeah um that's the end of our discussion on execution 13.5 but before we go let's see what people thought about this chapter five years ago to the day when it came out uh we've brought mm -hmm. out some comments from the comments section elliot do you want to start us off yeah, sure. Uh, so I brought a comment from Still Wind, uh, and it was just a really interesting uh, insight that I hadn't like noticed, which is um, the idea of like a boogeyman. Traditionally, is there this made-up story that's used to like frighten children into being good, you know? And so, uh, I, I don't know, um, you know, be good or the boogeyman will eat you is kind of the basic, um, the most basic idea. Uh, and Blake is now focusing himself basically on punishing what he perceives to be bad people. Like there's the sense that he's mirroring the boogeyman traditional concept. Uh, you know, he, if, if you're naughty, like, you know, the tree man will come and stab you with his mm. goblin sword uh, is, is going to be the, the thing in, uh, you know, all of Ontario for the next, for the next 20 years. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It was just an interesting connection that I hadn't made. I, I really sort of, I read this and I was like, Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I, I like this because it's made me think about the mechanics behind this, where I feel like any boogeyman that goes into the abyss and comes out, like Blake did, makes their way out, probably will have a similar thing where they have that core anchor, that core moral anchor that they've held onto, right? For Blake, it's, 
I need to go back because I have to punish the bad people. And that's why he's turned so into such a traditional version of a boogeyman. But I can imagine a boogeyman where there's some dude and they go into the abyss and they really think, oh, I... I, I was lactose intolerant. And so I'm, my thing that I'm holding on to is, oh, I hate, I fucking hate milk, right? And so <laughs> that's the anchor that you get warped around. And so when you come back, that becomes your driving motivation, right? You are the anti-milk boogeyman. Um, and so I feel like all boogeymen will have this core of a one strong moral that, at their center that they've become warped around, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um but it's 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 neat how Blake kind of mirrors in a lot of yeah. ways the conceptual origins of the idea. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, yeah, it's good. Uh, so I put out a comment by a user called Grinvader, and uh, this was a comment that I regret uh, bringing to the show already. Um, but I thought it was uh, <laughs> horrifying enough that I should bring it up, which is um, so so Grinvader. So Grinvader basically pointed out that. Uh, from what we know of ghosts, they are much more powerful the stronger of an emotional uh, imprint they had before they died, or, or the stronger emotions they had when they died, right? Um, so if your yeah. whole MO is about taking ghosts and, and using them to infuse things, it makes sense that if you're going to make a ghost, you want it to go out with some really strong emotions to give it the strongest possible residue, I guess we'll call it, when it dies. Um and so Grinvader points out that if you're a Valkala, you wouldn't just... Oh, mm. it just clicked. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't just kill like a baby in a sacrifice kind of way, like quickly and painlessly, because that would be the minimal power that you would get out of this situation. So Grinvader kind of makes the horrifying conclusion that these babies would not have had a quick or painless death because the more suffering that they had, the stronger and the more powerful as tools they would be. Um, so just another reason why this Valkala father and son are so fucked, as are all the Duchamps, especially Sandra, for allowing that to still be a part of their family. <laughs> um, so fuck that. Um, yes. I, I'm going to disagree with this, because don't the Valkala, they specialise in getting the souls. It's more like Evan. Right. And Evan was a bit different because he's a soul. Like that, that distinction has been made in story. Yes, and so it could just be that I'm rejecting this awful idea that you've brought up. Uh, but I, I think just the fact that they're soul. In fact, it could be some different flavor of fucked up, where it's like the fact that they're unborn babies is like, like symbolizes this lost life, this lost potential, or something. Um, d- depending on like how far along they were, and. And so, you know, that's all it takes, but it's like the soul that's really the important part. Um, I hope it's just that. I mean, that's still obviously really awful, but it's not as bad. Um, you know what? Let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> and that's the end of our show. <laughs> um, <laughs> On that note. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, if you have thoughts about what happened to these babies or anything else from this chapter, uh, the place to leave those is in our discussion thread, which will be linked in the show notes down below. And remember, we will be talking about our current discussion question soon, so make sure you get your answers in. That discussion question is, uh, pick a god from any mythology and come up with how they might have ascended to that position, as Molly seems to be doing now. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think this one's really fun. Yeah. Cool little writing prompts. Um, and, you know, if you agree with that, why don't you review us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever other podcasting things there are out there and and you give us a review and then it really helps us get spread out there and then people will read Pact and then Wildbo will get the uh, fame he deserves. Yep, and he'll finally do Pact 2. We know it's coming, Wildbo. I'm on to you. Um, <laughs> and if you want to support Wildbo and make that dream a reality, why not go to patreon.com slash Wildbo and give him some money for all the great work that he does? Uh, why not? Mm-hmm. And then once you're done there, you can, you know, just flick over to another page on the site, uh, patreon.com forward slash do for media. Uh, and every dollar you give goes straight into helping all of the great podcasts on the do for media network afloat. Yeah. Um, it directly supports these shows and directly supports things like, uh, this new, uh, microphone shield thing that I have staring me right in the face right now, which is hopefully 
improving my audio quality. Uh, we can yes, hopefully Ruben sounds a lot better right now, mm. or, or you know, or there's less thumping in the background. Um, I can finally do that ASMR stream that I've always been dreaming on. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, like we have money to buy things to improve our technical setup, and that only happens because of the support of all you lovely patrons. So um, thank you. And uh, if you aren't a patron, yes. I take back that but thanks. You, you got to earn it. So go to patreon.com slash doofmedia. Um, but there's there's also more tangible benefits to Patreoning for you. Uh, so we've got a Doof and Chill session happening uh, two days after, or no, a day after this comes out. Yeah. Uh, and that will be us playing, um, you, you should describe it. I don't know what the words yeah. are. Um, so uh, it's a role-playing, a, paper, a pen and paper role-playing game that is based on a series of satirical uh, homoerotic uh, meta short stories. Um, so if that sounds like complete nonsense, make sure you tune into that stream because it will be complete nonsense and it's going to be very fun. Um, the Chuck Tingle Tingleverse uh, role-playing game is what we'll be playing and I'm very excited. I'm <laughs> starting to build the campaign and the characters and uh, it's <laughs> going to be great. Um, yes. Uh, and then we also have uh, for our Doof Troop and Above members uh, bonus content that each of us does uh just for that tier uh i've got mine this weekend as well uh i will be streaming myself playing um alien isolation uh which is a very scary game and for those of you who follow medium d will know that i i don't do horror so i don't know why i'm doing this but if you want to see me suffer um become a doof troop supporter and, and come along mm. yeah um they, I think it's also worth announcing that uh, patrons will have recently got the chance to vote in the uh, Doof Media costume contest, which has just yeah. announced its winner, uh, which was Sarah D with a beautiful costume of Antares. Um, <laughs> hilarious picture with uh, her rejecting an egg, which I found very funny. Um, but of course, there are a lot of great costumes in there. Yeah, I think a shout out should go for the runner up, uh, the number family. Mm. Uh just for just for getting the whole family involved. Uh it was it was a really great great picture. I, I also really liked uh Sen V, who cosplayed as Rachel um Hellhound, if we're being PC, bitch if we're not. Um her costume was simple, but man, it was just so on point. Like I absolutely loved it. Um but a, a yeah. big hand to all the all the entrants, of course. Um if you want to see the results of that, you can go to doofmedia.com and check out the uh results. Yeah, so apart from that, we'll see everyone on Monday, the 18th of November, for Execution 13.6. Bye!